Okay. Nehemiah 11, 1 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So 1227. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites on all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and singing, with the cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nidopithites, also from Beth Gilgal, in the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. 38 to 40, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on, on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananol, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests of Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamin, Micaiah, Elanai, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Messiah, and Shemaiah, Eliza, Uzi, Jero, I didn't. Sorry, guys. This is the last time I'll read. <laughs> I mess it up every time. Okay, thank you. Uh, 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms and the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Debbie. Boys and girls, if you come up to the front, we'll pray before you head out to Story Keepers and Nursery. Come on up.
great to see you all today. Well, let's, let's pray together. Let's put our hands in the air and close our eyes as we bring our hands down and we'll talk to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you brought us to church today where we can see our friends, where we can learn about you, where you uh, tell us again how much you love us and you care for us. I pray for the boys and the girls in Story Keepers and in Nursery that they would have a great time, that they would learn about you, that they would be respectful of each other and listen well to each other and to Miss Tara and those in the nursery, and uh, that they would be blessed by you today as we pray your blessing on all of us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We uh, prepare to look at the passage uh, Debbie read for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, what you've been teaching us and revealing to us in the book of Nehemiah. We thank you that your word is such that no matter uh, what point in our spiritual journey we are at, that uh, each Sunday as we open up the Bible each day, when we open it up by ourselves or in our growth groups, you're committed to speak to us. What a great God you are. What a gracious God you are that you would do that. And we come expectantly today in chapters that perhaps are unfamiliar to many of us that you indeed would speak into our lives and our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not sure how familiar uh, the name Bob Geldof is to you, uh, but in Ireland he's a bit of a legend. Geldof went to school a couple of miles from where uh, we lived in Dublin. He was a member of the band, the Boomtown Rats. However, he's uh, best known as the organizer of the Live Aid concert event in 1985, which raised something like $70 million for uh, poverty and needs in Africa. But having pulled off uh, an incredible feat of concerts, you may remember, if you're old enough, simulcast back and forth from both sides of the Atlantic, and having raised an incredible amount of money, Geldof was standing on the stage at Wembley Stadium in London at the end of the day, and someone in the crowd shouted up at Geldof, is that it? And Geldof obviously took that question to heart because he went on to entitle his autobiography with those three words, is that it? Of course, that question could be taken one of at least two ways. It could be asked in a tone of disappointment. You attend an event for which there's been tremendous anticipation, and then on the day, things don't quite live up to expectations, and you're like, is that it? Or the question could be asked in the sense of wanting more. Your favorite band or singer has performed several encore uh, songs at the end of the concert. You really don't want it to end. And then the performer leaves the stage, the lights come up, and you somewhat forlornly turn to your friend and says, is that it? When we come to the end of Nehemiah 8 to 10, there's a bit of a sense of that, is that it question, not because of disappointment with what had gone before, and not because of necessarily wanting the experience they've had ne never to end. It's another version of the is that it question, which asks, okay, well, what's next? After 140 years since the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the sending of exile uh, into exile of the people of Judah, 
followed 70 years later by the beginning of the return of the exiles, followed by two other waves of returnees, all of which led, we've been talking about the rebuilding of the temple and the teaching again of the law, and now the rebuilding of the city wall. What's next? Back in chapter 6, we were told that despite facing significant opposition, even physical threats to Nehemiah, the people had miraculously completed the building of these walls in 52 days. They completed the wall in 11 days fewer than it's taken us to get to chapter 11 of the book of Nehemiah. But after the completion of the wall, we're told this sobering reality in chapter 7, verse 4. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. The temple had been rebuilt, the wall now had been rebuilt, but no houses had been rebuilt. So essentially, nobody's living yet in Jerusalem. So that massive Bible conference day in chapter 8 that we looked at a few weeks ago and the subsequent festivals that followed through the seventh month, followed by the day of confession, which we looked at last week, If anyone had come up to Nehemiah or Ezra or the Levites and said, is that it? Should we just go home now? They would have said, oh no, we've we've got plenty to do. And it's going to require dedication. And that's where we're going to draw our theme from for our three points today. First of all, a dedicated people. Secondly, a dedicated institution. Thirdly, a dedicated wall. What we're going to look at this morning. First, the dedicated people. As I, as I mentioned, despite all the progress made in Jerusalem, there's still no one living in the city save a few leaders. But all of that is about to change. Look at chapter 11, verses 1 to 2. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. As you might be able to imagine, the reasons why Jerusalem was not yet repopulated and re-inhabited were actually quite straightforward. For one thing, it would have been very dangerous. Maybe slightly less dangerous now that there was a wall, but still a, a city with a wall needed ample manpower within the wall to defend the city. Walls don't defend cities by themselves. So if a marauding army came through, they would be less likely to bother with scattered homes up in the hillsides in the surrounding area. They'd focus their attention on the city. So that given its vulnerability, this was not the sort of place where a young Jewish family raising their children would say, well, this looks like a nice up-and-coming area. Why don't we move here? But moving to Jerusalem would not just have been dangerous. It would have been difficult. It had been tough enough enduring the challenging thousand-mile trek back from exile in Persia to their ancestral home now back in the area of Judah and Jerusalem, but to then contemplate starting over in a city still filled with ash and rubble that was much less desirable than the more rural surrounding towns and villages where there was land for crops and herds and flocks. So even amongst a population who we should acknowledge must have been pretty hardcore when it came to grit and perseverance, having trekked those thousand miles, almost everyone had up to this point said, "Mm, no, not living in Jerusalem. We're not raising our family there. That would be insane. 
And in many senses, they were right. It would have been insane. But here at the beginning of chapter 11, in the space of two verses, 140 years of history get reversed just like that. These two verses are really the only action for all of chapter 11 and half of chapter 12. But in those two verses, everything changes. So the people cast lots, as we heard Debbie read today, such that one out of every 10 people would move into Jerusalem, and then the remaining nine out of the 10 would stay in the surrounding towns and, and villages. A number of commentators suggest that this method was needed to sort of force a segment of the population to move, even though they didn't want to, that they sort of you know, drew straws, and those who drew the short straws were voluntold to go to Jerusalem. But I think that actually overlooks a couple of things here. Firstly, even though, even though we were told in chapter 7 that the city was essentially empty, this casting of lots didn't happen in chapter 7. It's happening now in chapter 11 with chapters 8 to 10 in, in the intervening period, and that's for a reason. Because through chapters 8 through 10, as we've seen over the last few weeks, God had given the people a renewed vision of who he was and what he was doing. And by way of an extensive reading and application of God's word, observing together several Jewish feasts in this time, and then sharing together in a day of confession, the people had come to see in a new way God's character and his purposes. The end of chapter 9 and and into chapter 10, they make this firm covenantal commitment to God. And now as a result, it appears that they have a, a renewed sense of the importance of the city of Jerusalem. And it's not just because the city is their home. It's not just because it has strategic, defensive, or military purposes. No, Jerusalem was ultimately important because it was the holy city. It's how it's referred to in verse 1. It's how it's referred to in verse 18. In fact, there are only four times in the Old Testament where Jerusalem is referred to as the holy city, and two of them appear in this chapter. Jerusalem was the holy city because it had been set apart by God. Now, this brings us back to something that we uh, noted earlier in this series in Nehemiah, that if you go looking for books or sermons on the book of Nehemiah, you'll find that the majority of them focus on one of two themes. For, for some, it coincides with a church building project. Nehemiah is the book to go to. And for others, it's on the theme of, of leadership. But as we've tried to see, while there are helpful glimpses into good leadership practices through this book, that's really not what this book is all about. It's really about the importance of Jerusalem in the grand story of the Bible. And that grand story began with God creating this world, as recorded in Genesis 1, where everything was good, everything was beautiful, everything was delightful. But as many of you know, within two chapters, the first humans, Adam and Eve, had refused to trust God and his promises. They disobeyed him, and the fall had occurred. However, at the end of Genesis 3, God promises, I'm going to fix this mess that you've made. He's going to provide a way to forgive us our sin. He's going to restore his relationship with us such that he will be our God and we will be his beloved people. And as we read on, we discover that this forgiveness and this restoration is only going to be able to come through a redeemer, someone that we discover will be the promised anointed one, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ, the very son of God. 
And so that as you read the Old Testament, everything from Genesis 3 on is the setup for the coming of this Savior. And this Savior, we learn, will come out of a people that God calls to himself, the people of Israel. And this is where we start to see the the particular significance of the book of Nehemiah. Because God appoints Jerusalem to be the capital city of the nation of Israel. According to Deuteronomy 4, Jerusalem was to be the center point of of a nation upon whom all other nations were to gaze and marvel. It was to be the white-hot center of God's missional flame. But in the part of the God's story that Nehemiah finds himself, as we've been seeing, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Good news, as we've also seen, is that the temple's been rebuilt. Now the walls are being rebuilt. Bad news is that there's no one to live there. And if that continued to be the case in the holy city, there would be no holy nation to bring forth God's promised holy one who was the key, is the key to our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God. For the Messiah to come required a rebuilt city and temple and priesthood and sacrifices at the center of a rebuilt nation, a place where the Messiah could grow up Jewish in order to be the true and ultimate Israel, the final temple, the ultimate high priest, the ultimate sacrifice, so that the repopulation of Jerusalem was not just a part of a normal longing for a national homeland. It was a key ingredient in God's redemptive plan for the world because the holy city was essential for the raising up of the Holy One of Israel, Israel's Messiah, the Savior and King Jesus. Now, obviously, the people of of Nehemiah's day didn't know all the details that we now know as New Testament Christians, but from their study of God's word, they understood enough to now realize the significant importance of Jerusalem, such that here in chapter 11, they're willing to say, as a people, each person saying, I'm willing to go. We don't need everybody to move to Jerusalem, but we need some of us to move in God's redemptive plan, and I'm willing to go. And so they cast lots, and one out of every ten gets the call to go, and we're told that all those who were selected went willingly, and the rest of the people blessed them, because this was a dedicated people. Now, behind what we read here is a demonstration that on the part of the people at this point, there there was great faith. There was a a willingness to risk born out of the assurance of knowing who God is and what his purposes are. I'd like to suggest that that risk-taking posture is one that God, God calls all of his followers to have. Indeed, given what we now know compared to what Nehemiah's people knew, we have even greater grounds for kingdom risk-taking. Here's today's bulletin quote for reflection from the English missionary C.T. Studd. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and he died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Martin Sanders is a seminary professor at the Alliance Theological Seminary who I met about 15 years ago in Ireland while I was doing the uh, Arrow Leadership course. And one of the things he said then that I still remember is that most of us who see ourselves as Christians don't risk enough for the simple fact that we're afraid of failure. 
And Martin re remarked that that was very much the way in his life, but when he identified that fear in his own life and saw how antithetical it was to faith, he resolved from that point on that, that he wanted to fail between 10 and 25% of the time because he said, if I don't fail that frequently, I'm not taking enough risks. Dedicated people of God like those in Nehemiah 11 are risk takers. Before we move to our second point, I, if I might be a little self-indulgent here, let me reflect with you on one other aspect of this first part of the chapter. While this passage is not one to build a whole theology of cities on, it does fit within the larger biblical narrative where God tends to send his servants, such as the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, to urban centers as opposed to more rural areas. Ever since I was pastoring in Ireland, I've been significantly influenced, as many of you know, by Tim Keller on this point. T Keller points out, for example, in the book of Acts, that the Apostle Paul strategically travels to the cities of Asia Minor because he says if you reach the city, you're more likely to reach the culture and reach your region and reach the world. It was Tim Keller who inspired the creation of Redeemer City to City which is the umbrella organization under which our partner church in Exarchia, Athens, was birthed. Incidentally, I came across this next picture uh, uh, of a few of us standing on a platform at Secaucus Station in, uh, in New Jersey in 2010. We were heading to a Redeemer event in New York City that Alexandris was uh, participating in. Vicki Malthainer, Carol Crow, Sandy Meyer, Olga Stokes, Susan Brown, and some fell at the end there, blast from the past there, 2010 I think that was, and some, some of you came on a second trip I remember going up there. But part of the motivation for Alexandris and Tim planting that church was not just to meet, uh, to, to reach Exarchia with the gospel, but from Exarchia to reach other parts of Athens and Greece and beyond. And Tim Keller, over the years, has noted that one motivation for starting city to city was that Protestant evangelical Christians are the least urban religious group out there and thus tend to have the smallest impact culturally. Interestingly, the late Jim Boyce, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia for, for many years, in his book entitled Two Cities, Two Loves, comments on these verses in Nehemiah 11, and the tithing of the people to move into Jerusalem. And Boyce suggests in that book that in, in our country, here in the U.S., which is less agricultural than Judah, a proportional ratio of Christians moving into cities should be higher than 10%. And if, if we did so, lived out a life of love and truth and servanthood, the culture would be fundamentally changed. So for the last 20 years, I've sought to champion ministry in the cities and had involvement in such ministry in Dublin, but if you told me a year ago that Tara and I would be moving to Manhattan for a ministry role, I would have found that very difficult to believe, and yet here we are. Tara and I were in New York this past Wednesday to meet the staff at Central Presbyterian. Afterwards, we were chatting to Jason Harris, the senior pastor, and he commented that for all the allure and the glamour of a city like New York City, the simple reality is that it is not easy to be an evangelical Christian in the city. You really have to be all in for Jesus or the culture will just swallow you up 
such that you end up looking and living like your secular neighbors. And all of that is to say, when you vote in two weeks' time to dismiss me, we would be honored if you would... if you would consider it as something of a commissioning, ascending, ascending of missionaries from this church to the city, or to put it in Nehemiah 11 terms that the lots have been cast and the straws have been drawn and Tara and I are the ones whom the Lord has called to move into the city and to paraphrase verse two here, the people blessed those who willingly offered to live in New York City. From a dedicated people, we jump to the end of chapter 12 to see a dedicated institution. Look at chapter 12, 44 to 45. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. As we're going to see in a few moments, this closing scene comes right on the heels of a grand celebration of joyful worship as they dedicate the wall. And these joyful praises are still echoing through the air when this verse breaks in, verse 45, on that day. And as a reader, you're wondering what great climax you're about to read about happening on this day after this glorious worship. And as you read on, you discover that on that day, they got organized. And you're like, really? They put structures and disciplines into place. Well, that rather sounds anticlimactic to most of us. But I want you to see that there's a real beauty to what we observe here. Notice that as they get organized, God's people weren't making this up as they go along. They were ordering their lives together according to God's word. They institute practices that verse 44 tells us were required by the law. Verse 45, according to the command of David, King David and his son, King Solomon. And this actually speaks to us directly as New Testament Christians because God still expects us to order ourselves as the church according to God's word to do all things as the Apostle Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 14 decently and in order. The Apostle Paul actually spends quite a bit of time in his letters explaining how God's people, the church, are to be ordered so that the good news of the gospel can be effectively proclaimed and applied. Indeed, as you read through the Bible, you realize that God cares a great deal about how his people should order their lives around regular worship disciplines, regular gatherings together with carefully appointed and qualified leaders, faithful financial contributions, an accounting of that giving, organized care for the needy and the elderly, and always with the reading and the teaching of God's word front and center. Or to put it another way, God believes in the institution of the church. Andy Crouch, in his 2013 book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, has a, a really helpful section on institutions in that book. He writes that we, we live in an age that is deeply suspicious of institutions. If that was true in 2013, it's even more true today. And some of that 
suspicion is well grounded if institutions succumb to institutionalism, existing only to preserve themselves rather than to venture and risk their assets in the service of a comprehensive flourishing. But Crouch comments that, that institutions don't have to be these calcified bureaucracies slowly sucking the soul out of its inmates. That part of why we're cynical about institutions is because we've a limited view of what institutions are and how they work. Starkly, institutions have been much more varied and valuable things than they are perceived to be today. In the broadest sense, writes Crouch, an institution is, quote, a cultural pattern of rules and roles, artifacts and arenas for human creativity and action that passes from one generation to the next. Now, I find that helpful because it reminds us that the church has been designed by God to be, in the healthiest sense of the word, an institution. That's not a particularly popular way, uh, even amongst Christians of thinking, that rather than commit to a structured organization called the church, a lot of people who would consider themselves Christians would rather just read their Bibles with a friend over coffee when the feeling comes or get a group together when the mood strikes or listen to an occasional sermon online or read a blog post. In other words, create this kind of pseudo-Christian lifestyle with little or no commitment to the institution. However, in his wisdom, God has called on Christians to be part of an institution, in part because it's through such an institution that he brings the greatest amount of flourishing to us as his people and to the world. And I say all that as an encouragement to all of you to remain committed to the institution of this local church, even during the upcoming transition, because even during a pastoral vacancy, God has designed this world such that your greatest influence and impact in the lives of others and the wider culture will come through your involvement in the institution of the local church. Before we move to the last point, I want to show you a very short video, which a few of you I think have seen, but when you see it, believe it or not, this has been quite pivotal in terms of how I've thought about the institutional ministry of PCKS. Watch the video. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see. 
instant followers because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point, and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in crowd if they hurry. But over the next minute, you'll see the rest prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'll be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is on how you want to stay. I don't remember when I, when I first saw this video, but when I did, I thought, believe it or not, this is what God has equipped BCCast to be. A first follower, which helps catalyze kingdom movements. Because we're at the size of a church where it's harder for us to be the leader with a capital L. But in God's providence, he's positioned us well for that crucial role of first follower. And two examples of how we've done it over the last 10 years or so. We served that role with the Constellation Network. It was something I was involved in, Troop Michler was involved in, Ruth Ann Davini was involved in, where we came alongside Willowdale Chapel as the first early adopter of that network of churches working for the common good. It was out of that that came the, the uh, Give, Serve, Restore campaign during, during Lent for several years. Constellation Network, network uh, no longer exists, but it birthed a number of other organizations which still are going in this community and making a big difference. And secondly, as Alexanders and Tim never tire of telling people to this day, we were the first follower of the Exarchia church plant. In the early days when the two of them were traveling around the US raising support uh, for their church plant, and the question would come up, do, do you have any other churches partnering with you? And they'd say, well, yeah, there's this little church in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania that's already committed. And that often was what made the difference in others signing up to partner too. And so I pray that the Lord will continue to provide you with opportunities to be the first follower in other gospel movements and initiatives that will develop for the glory of God, because that's what a dedicated institution does. And then lastly, we come to the dedicated wall. Look at uh, chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. As we've seen, it's been a hard, long slog to get to this day. There have been many setbacks, opposition, disappointments, but, but here now, finally, everything's coming together. Wall's been built, the city's being repopulated, God has been restored to the center of the community, and now the day of dedication of the wall has arrived. And Nehemiah tells us that people were put into place for this grand procession, as you, and as you read on, it's just this most stunning scene, because Nehemiah appoints not just one choir, but two choirs. And he brings them up together with the leaders of Judah up onto the, the walls. Some of you may recall back in chapter 4, Nehemiah's opponent, Sanballat and Tobiah, had mocked the rebuilding of the wall effort, saying, this wall couldn't even hold a fox. Well, it's holding more than a fox now, buddy. One of the choirs heads south on the wall, along the red line in, in the map there. 
towards the Dung Gate and beyond, with Ezra and leaders and musicians following them, and the other choirs going to the north, the blue line on the map, with Nehemiah himself and others follow, following them. I mean, just try to picture this, and just try to hear it. I mean, you wonder what they were singing. I bet they were singing Psalm 48, walk about Zion and go around her, number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God, forever and ever. Or Psalm 122, if not to Hubert Parry's glorious arrangement sung at several royal weddings, certainly something just as, if not more, rousing. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. And having walked their respective sections of the walls, the two groups, the choirs and everyone with them, reconvene at the house of the Lord at the temple. And here's what we read in verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This dedication is accompanied by this symphony of joy. Joy or rejoicing, if you noticed, is mentioned five times in this one verse. And that joy is expressed in praise and thanksgiving and singing and, and music. And it's tempting to read this and imagine it and say to ourselves, oh, I wish I could have been there for such a grand occasion, such an outpouring of praise and joy. But I want to tell you, friends, we have something much, much better because we get to gather every week to express such joy and praise. We get to do it today. And you might say, well, yeah, but it was obviously different back then. I mean, look at the joy that's described here. And you're right, it was different back then. But not in the way you're thinking. It was different because they had less reason to rejoice than we do. They were rejoicing at the dedication of a wall. We gather Sunday by Sunday to rejoice at a Savior who, without the casting of lots, said to his father, I'll leave the security and safety I've known for eternity to go to Jerusalem. I'll leave the delights of heaven to face the dangers of this world. I'll do that because it's the only way to rescue this people to live in their place and die in their place such that they can be, in the words of our opening hymn, redeemed, restored, forgiven. And so he came into our world and he did that for us. And outside these very walls of Jerusalem, he hangs on a cross and he dies there in payment for our sins. And then he rises again from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father. And from there he sends out his spirit into the lives of everyone who puts their trust in him so that we have the assurance not only that we're forgiven, but that we're never alone. We're never alone because we're the children of the king. We're the children of the living God. And if that's not worth singing about, if that's not worth singing until your lungs hurt, then I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Is that it? Going into a vacancy, is that it? You better believe it's not, because there's always more with Jesus. There's more worth risking for. There's more that involves the promotion of flourishing through institutions. And there's more for which we can and should joyfully praise him. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are such a great God. You are a God who walks with your people in every step of the journey. You are a God who places in our hearts the willingness to risk for you because of who you are and what your purposes are. You're the God who calls some churches to be leaders and some churches to be first followers. We pray, Lord, that we would trust you, risk for you, seek to bring flourishing as a church to those around us, and that praise and rejoicing would be always on our lips, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.